And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Tonight, I got an interesting little presentation for you all. Uh, and it's basically a history of Chicago um, in the 1800s and, and leading up to the 1893 Chicago Expo or World's Fair, however you want to look at it. And, you know, I didn't get into this till about a year ago when I was reading uh, Howdy McCoskey's uh, Exposing the Expositions. Um, and it was talking about ancient America or ancient America, ancient Rome possibly being in America. And I was like, oh, this is, this is a cool idea. And so I started digging into it and you start seeing these amazing buildings that looks like Rome. And you're like, this is Chicago. And uh, so I started digging into it. And then, uh, you know, I just started gathering more and more information. And then I read uh, a great book called Devil in the White City um, by Eric Larson, which is about H.H. Uh, Holmes, who we'll get into later in this show, uh, who might have been one of the most prolific serial killers in American history that just so happened to be at the Chicago Expo. And there's a lot of things that happened in Chicago in the 1800s that that really set this off. So uh, let's dig in. So I got this from Michelle Gibson the other day in one of her presentations, and I, I thought this was a great way to look at it because exposition is an interesting choice of words. Because an exposition is a threat, is a text that presents one side of the issue. The purpose is to persuade the reader or listening listener by presenting one side of the argument that is the case for or against. And if you think about it, you know, as we go through these expos, we're going to see they were trying to tell a story. And what story or what was the purpose of these fairs? Was it? you know, to give people something to do, or was there a greater purpose? And that's what we're going to get into. And the other definition of exposition is a large exhibit, usually sponsored by a government or trade group to showcase the products and services of a particular company, region, or country. And that's really what this was. This wasn't necessarily sponsored by a government, so to speak, but by, you know, the, the rich, the elite, of the time were the ones who, who paid a lot of it. You know, the towns did, their cities did chip in, but the majority of the, the cost was uh, donations and, and, you know, by rich folks. So we'll look at this Chicago Expo. It was called the Great White City, or the, some people refer to it as the New Roman Empire. It was the Phoenix rising from the ashes. And one of the things that has, multiple meetings when it comes to the Chicago exposition is the term whitewash. And we'll get into that a little bit later as well. That's an interesting term that has multiple meanings, one with painting and one with erasing, but they're both covering something up. So as we dig into this, what we're going to start seeing is uh, a lot of things that don't really add up. Okay. So as we go through this and here is, is one of the first things that, that caught my attention was the population of Chicago. Okay. So in 1840, they had 4,500 people say 1850, they had about 30,000 
1860, still only at about 112,000. 1870, they were at about 300,000. 1880, they, they doubled it almost, almost a little over 500K. Then between 1880 and 1890, we see this huge boom of 500,000 people. So we go from 500,000 to almost 1.1 million. And then another, you know, same uh, growth rate from 1890 to 1900, where the population goes from about 1.1 million to 1.7 million. So we see this vast, rapid expansion of Chicago, basically from 18, you know, mid 1870s to 1900, where you go from about 300,000 people to 1.7 million. Think about that. About 25 years, 1.7 million people moved to Chicago. Now, what I found interesting here was between 1876 and 1891, there were said to be 60,000 buildings erected in Chicago at a cost of about $310 million at the time, and it created a street frontage of about 286 miles. I mean, that's just a massive, massive undertaking right there in a 15-year period. So they're cranking out about 4,000 buildings a year. Very, very. Now, when we look at these buildings, that's what caught my attention, okay? We're not talking about these simple structures. We are talking about some extravagant buildings. I mean, and and for those that are watching on, on the video here, you'll see that this was built in 1883. This is the Union League Club. Guys, this is a massive brick structure. It's, it's, it's enormous. It's, it's about, I don't know, five stories tall, has a beautiful, huge column. All the outside windows are, you know, arched and, you know, beautiful brick uh, facade. And then you get up to, there's a giant column on the corner with a, uh, you know, what looks like a Russian church top, you know, that almost Islamic look to it. So, you know, what we're, what I uh, have here is, is in 1834, okay, just to give you an understanding of the population, in 1834, when the whole town turned out for a wolf hunt, and they killed about 50 of them, there was only about 2,000 people in the town, okay? Then in 1835, we're looking at still only about 3,000 people in the town. In 1837, the whole country was depressed, and Chicago couldn't avoid it. So for five years, there was essentially no increase in the population of Chicago. So from late 1830s to early 1840s, no population increase. Okay. Then we see in 1849, the first of the disasters, right? We see the great flood of 1849, where all the bridges were swept away. All the vessels and canal boats were broken and shattered by the ice that came in and all the wharves were ruined. Okay, so now to give you an understanding of the growth of Chicago, okay, we were just talking about the population there. In 1835, it was about three square miles. By 1893, about 60 years later, it was 18 square miles or six times larger. Okay, and if we look, so this is a photo here, and I, for those listening, look up Chicago of 1853. It's a panoramic view of the city. 
And the city only had about 30 to 50,000 people, but what you'll see in this drawing here, rendering here is quite a few steeples, you know, for only having a, a small population, there's an abundance of buildings and churches. And, you know, a lot of this appears to be built on what they called swampland, right? It's in the marsh area. So construction would not have been easy. You see the railway coming in, the ship shipping line that can come right in to the city. Okay, but I just want to give you an understanding of what we're talking about in 1850. And, and you'll see a lot of it is sparse in this drawing. There's a lot of open land. It's just kind of a... Uh, a coagulated area here where they have all of these buildings. So we're going to start showing you some of the buildings that they built in this 60,000 building for, you know, 15 year period. So in 1872, they built this County courthouse. I mean, talk about a massive structure. I mean, this thing is enormous. Again, it's, it's three stories tall beautiful, elaborate outdoors. I highly recommend you check out the video to see this building. Okay. Then we'll look at the Board of Trade, which was supposedly built in 1885. Another just, I mean, and guys, when we, we talk about these buildings, not only were they lavish on the outside and beautiful to look at, inside the interior was exquisite, you know, top notch woodwork on the inside, uh, floors, walls, and ceilings. Okay, and then, you know, on the domes, a lot of them had beautiful artwork that we'll, we'll see here in, in a minute, too. But, you know, again, remember what we're talking about. We're talking about the late 1800s, where there wasn't a lot, if any, way to move around this material to build these buildings easily. Okay, it's, it's just one of those that just you look at the time and you look at the buildings, I mean, to build, and, and we're going to keep going here. You look at the, the Chicago Waterworks, which is a giant tower uh, structure with a building behind it, you know, I mean, a massive complex. Then we look at the post office and the government building that was completed in 1880. It cost them about $6 million at the time. And it's about, you know, 340 feet by 210 feet, beautiful structure with uh, two, two half domes with a, uh, a dome on top, almost like where you would have a church bell. I mean, these, it's just an amazing building. And I think that that was built in 15 years, let alone 60,000 buildings is just mind-blowing. Okay, so let's take a look here. Here is the Chicago Post Office, another monster of a building. Again, brick exterior we're looking at a, a giant facility. It rivals the, the post office in size. And this was built in 1889. And you look at the exterior, it was exquisite. The interior was exquisite. I mean, it was just a beautiful, beautiful structure said to be built in 1889. Another, why not? You're building, you're building the, uh, the post office. Well, why not build the Prison and War Museum, which is a famous Libby Prison and War Museum, which kind of looks like a castle. And that makes you think, well, did they build it or was it there? And that's one of the things we're going to get into. But this was supposedly built in 1889. And then you look at this photo here on the left of uh, Michigan Avenue. 
I mean, the, the guys, these buildings, they're not just average buildings. These are massive, massive. And it makes you, there's so many questions that come from this. I'll give you another one. 1872, we had the Lake and Shore, uh, Lake Shore and Michigan Southern Depot built. I mean, again, two giant would appear to be clock towers um, on this, what, one, two, three, about four to five story building, just massive. Then we look at the one of their favorites, which is the Masonic Temple, which was built in 1892. This, again, we're looking at, it looks like a hotel with its size. But again, the, the intricacy of the detail on the outside, it's not just a plain brick building. I mean, it is massive in size and stature. Supposedly, George Pullman in the 1880s built the Pullman Building, which it kind of, in a way, looks like the temple. And it also it definitely looks like the Temperance Temple, the Women's Temperance Temple that I have here on the right that was built, um, what is that, 1892. So while they're building the World's Fair, they were also building the Temperance Temple, the Women's Temperance Temple. So they weren't busy enough with the World's Fair, which we'll get into later. But they were also building this enormous, beautiful structure with a huge, they have, you notice the spires on top. You know, these things look more like castles than they do, you know, whatever building that you're told. You know, the Masonic building doesn't look like a lodge. It looks like a castle. Now, here's another interesting thing. Okay, and this is this is uh, from the 1850s. So if you look at the difference here, look at this building, okay, and look at the design and the intricacy of this building. This is not very exquisite. This is kind of what you would expect from a building at that period. It's huge. Don't get me wrong. It's a big, big hotel. But here's the thing. Supposedly, this hotel, okay, we look at it and notice over here on the right, there is an awful lot of dirt all around the perimeter now that may be where they they had to uh, dig to raise it. But supposedly they raised and moved this entire building. OK, they raised it about, I believe it's six feet because it was built on swampland. OK, and we'll get into that right here. There was a gentleman named John C. Lane who came from San Francisco, which if you think about it, San Francisco, the gold rush was around 1849, 1850. This guy's coming in 1856 with this superior knowledge of building, lifting, raising buildings, entire buildings. We're talking massive buildings. Well, San Francisco at that time wouldn't have had a lot of buildings, if you think about it. You're, you're dealing with miners. You know, people coming out west, you're not looking at the rich at that point yet. So where did this guy gain all his knowledge on this um, building lifting technology? Always something, and, and you can't really find a lot about it. There's a lot of drawings, not a lot of detail on it. But the reason why they did it, okay, so this, this um the building that they raised was 120 feet by 180 feet, five-story building that they supposedly lifted six feet in 1856. And they did some multiple buildings between 1856 and 1860, supposedly. And the reason was that in the early springtime, the area was so wet that the people had to walk two blocks because the ground was just swamp, marsh, 
You know, the women would wear their husband's boots because they were afraid of losing their shoes in the muddy ground. Okay, so we look at this and it's just, you know, they have the whole building raised. So then we get to the second disaster that hits Chicago in the 1800s. And this is the Great Fire of 1871. Okay, and this is a massive fire that essentially levels the city. 17,000 buildings are destroyed. 300 people are killed and over 2,000 acres are destroyed. Now, what's interesting about this fire is it's not just in Chicago. There's four other great fires around Lake Michigan on that same day. There's one in Wisconsin in Pistico. There's one in Michigan on Port Huron. There's uh, some in parts of Minnesota. And then there's also some in Ontario and Chicago. So five different fires in one day. That doesn't seem to make sense unless there was some extenuating circumstances, right? Well, one third of the population, which was about 300,000, was left homeless at the time due to this. So you look and it was about 200 million in damage at the time, which is about, you know, almost $4 billion today. We talked about the 13, uh, 300 fatalities, 300 people died. 17,450 buildings were destroyed. Okay, now what caused the fire? Well, there's some theories. There's vandals, milk thieves, spontaneous combustion, a drunken neighbor, or the best one is the O'Leary's cow supposedly knocked over a candle in the barn with her tail, started the whole great Chicago fire, $4 billion worth of damage by a cow, not buying it. 2,000 acres were destroyed, right? So you think about that. Now let's look at this. This is where it gets interesting. So what we have here is a map of Lake Michigan. And what you'll see up here in Pistigo, there were massive fires on this day. We're talking about October 8th, 1871, okay? Pistigo lost between 1,500 and 2,000 people died and 1.2 million acres burned. Think about that, 1.2 million acres burned, okay? In Michigan, you had between 200 and 1,000 people killed and 2.5 million acres burned. Chicago, we had lost 250 to 300 people and 17,000 buildings, about 2,000 acres were burned. Now, this leads you to believe that something must have happened in the area of the lake to cause these fires. Now, one of the theories out there is something called Biela's Comet. Okay, this comet was first discovered in 1821, and it made an appearance every six years and nine months until 1866. It was set to reappear in 1872, but never has appeared since. So could it have been a comet that landed in the area and caused these massive fires? Well, let's take a look at some of the pictures because it doesn't look like a traditional fire. What we're looking at here looks like a carpet-bombed area, right? And what you'll notice here over on the right-hand side, it appears to be some sort of wooden structures that survived in the middle of these massive fires. 
And the only other remnants you see is what appears to be a, a, some sort of tower, water tower or something here. And then some brick buildings, there's pieces of them left. You know, some of the facade is still standing, but the interior looks gutted. A lot of the roofs are gone. And it looks like something you would see out of the Blitzkrieg from World War II. Okay, I mean, look at this utter devastation. That appears to be more than fire if you look at it, because these are brick buildings, guys. Granted, they would have wood on the interior that would be flammable, but it just doesn't seem to make sense looking at these pictures. It looks like a war zone. Okay, and again, look at this area. You have these brick buildings destroyed, but yet right across the street, you have these three little wood huts that are just standing there like nothing's wrong. It just doesn't make sense. And that's going to be the theme of this that we start seeing as we go deeper and deeper into this. I mean, look, you have a chimney right here, right? You have the facade that's all banged up. But yet these little shacks right in the middle survive. I don't know. Doesn't make sense to me. So let's take a look at another one. Again, look at the rubble. The utter destruction. Okay, it does not appear to be just a random cow knocking over a candle. This looks like it has been bombed thoroughly and utterly just gutted. I mean, look at this. This is a zoom in of the uh, of one of the earlier pictures and you just see rubble everywhere. As far as your eye can see, there's rubble, bricks, you know, pieces of metal half buildings then we get one more disaster in chicago in april of 1892 we had a few buildings collapse that were uh being constructed for the fair due to a severe windstorm possibly a tornado okay so there's three natural of you know natural disasters a giant flood, a massive fire, and a windstorm, all within about a 50-year period. It's pretty amazing and pretty shitty luck, if you ask me. So now, here's another thing that really didn't sit well and make sense with me, and this is something that Howdy McCoskey pointed out in his book. And it has to do with after the fair, okay? So the fair was was completed in 1893 in 1895 so it was just after the fair's completion right they just built out all these massive buildings they started construction on a 14 acre building called the chicago coliseum and on august 22nd the building collapsed and had to be restarted it was just a 300 by 700 foot building required two and a half million pounds of steel 3.2 million feet of lumber and 3 million bricks. And it was finally completed in June of 1896. So with that said, this would be the equivalent of about a medium-sized building for the fair, okay? And it took, A, it collapsed on them. So what you, and it's not an exquisite design, guys. It looks like a field house, a giant field house, one level, you know, pitched roof. It's just a standard, nothing exquisite building. And it collapsed on them. These are supposed to be, 
the greatest builders of our time that just built some of the most amazing structures that we will see. And this building collapses on them and it takes them a full year to build it. But yet we're supposed to believe that they built 200 massive, not all massive, but 200 structures in just two years. And this one that they're building solo just collapses. It just doesn't make sense, guys. So we get to the fair itself. All right. So the White City, it was called. The 1893 World's Columbian Exposition, the Chicago World's Fair. It was open from May 1st to October 31st, 1893. Now, this was a massive complex, guys. 690 acres built on swamplands. Okay, Jackson Park is basically a swamp. They built 200 giant buildings, big structures in less than two years. In addition, they had the world's largest Ferris wheel which was 264 feet high. They had a 65-foot Colombian statue of Columbia, who, you know, if you believe them, the, the narrative was supposed to be a rep- representation of Columbus, right? And that's what this was. This was supposed to celebrate, it was supposed to be in 1892. It was supposed to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Columbus hoax. And so the statue was 65 feet tall on a 30-foot base, just a a spectacle. And supposedly it was either, there's rumors that it was solid gold or that it was gold-leafed. Either way, it was covered in gold. So we look at the fair itself. It supposedly drew 27.3 million people from May to October. And on Chicago Day, which was in October of 1893, they drew 750,000 people in one day. Okay. It cost them approximately $30 million to make it. To, and they made about a $3 million profit, which isn't something that you will see very often with these fairs. Most of these fairs lose money. Okay. This one, for some reason, was a spectacle and it made money. Supposedly, they used 40,000 workers. And one of the interesting things is uh, just adjacent to this massive fair was this thing called Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. And we'll get into that a little bit because uh, they tried to steal a little thunder from the expo. And, and they were very successful. It was a successful operation, but they were not allowed to be a part of the fair. So what did they do? They improvised and we said, okay, we'll be next to the fair. How about that? So if we look at these, these pictures we have here, and this is probably one of the more familiar from the Chicago Expo. It's from the backside of the uh, Statue of Columbia looking down the Court of Honor. Okay, and what you see here is what, I mean, we're talking Chicago in 1893. It more resembles... Rome or Greece, something of of that ilk, not what you would picture Chicago. I mean, we're talking beautiful white structures, fountains, statues, just exquisite art and, and landscaping to this, this enormous facility. 
And it does. It, it is absolutely amazing. And, and again, I highly suggest that you watch the video because I cannot do these pictures any justice. So before they could even do the construction, right, they, there was stuff that, that had to be put in place. I mean, we're talking about a massive undertaking here. So they had to railroad and transport the steel and all the building materials for 200 plus structures. Okay. This is all done within two years, guys. The planning started in late 1890. The first meeting was in 1891. All right. And they, this fair kicked off in 1893. They had to develop a system to deliver mail and supplies, right? You got to get mail around. They had to have hospital and medical staff. They had to have shelter for the workers, right? You had to have people to cook and provide meals for the workers, and food storage, right? I mean, where is all this coming from? Staff, you know, to clean up the grounds and especially cleaning up after the horses because the main mode of transportation was horse and buggy. They had to lay the water mains and submains. They had to lay the underground electrical lines, okay? Now, here's the thing that just blows your mind. It's built on a swamp, as I said before. Supposedly, they dredged and filled this area in about four months, okay, which is hard to believe at best, okay? And they did it for a cost of about $615,000. You know, what, what tools were they using? How were they able to pull this off so quickly? It's just, it's mind-blowing, and, and we cannot find how, how. I mean, there's very little to give us on the construction itself of these, and that leads to the questions, okay? So here, here's an interesting thing, too. When the fair opened, about 90% of the buildings were unfinished, so they had to whitewash them for uniformity. So anybody that's not familiar with whitewashing, it's... It was a technique allegedly, uh, you know, piloted by Frank Millet, okay, who was a name from the fairs, uh, one of the bigwigs. And he was responsible for whitewashing all the buildings, painting all the buildings white. And he came up with this spray technique where they were able to spray all the buildings exterior to make them look white and uniform. And they were, were beautiful. I mean, by the, uh, you know, the... Uh, touched up photos that we've seen, you know, the digitally enhanced, it, it's beautiful. Now, an interesting thing about Frank Millet and why, you know, people question some of this stuff is Frank Millet just so happened to be on the Titanic when it sunk and he did not survive. So another victim of the Titanic and interesting how, you know, all these things kind of tie in and weave. It's a, it's a mighty web they weave. So here's the questions that you have to pose, right? How did they build so fast? What techniques? What tools? They didn't have any electrical tools, okay? And there, a lot of the time, they were building in the winter in Chicago. Think about that. Chicago's, it's not like building in Texas or Florida. The winters are brutal there. So how did you build in the winter months? So And, and winter there is basically... 
you know, December, you could say it starts and then it goes basically until March, April. April, if you're lucky. Right? Early April, you'll start seeing spring come around. So they lost another four months of building time there. They must add some way to build in the winter too and survive the elements. Where did all these materials come from? Again, we're talking 200 buildings worth of material in 1893. Who's manufacturing all this? All the brick, all the steel, all the lumber. How'd they get the materials to the site? Everything came by train? That's the only plausible idea, you know, if you're considering the technology at the time. Where are the blueprints for the buildings? You think these massive spectacles of buildings, you'd be able to find all the blueprints. Can't find any blueprints. There was no machines, no trucks or electricity, as I've said repeatedly. It was horse and carriage and trains were used to transport all the materials. How many workers were actually used? There's reports of 40,000. Okay. But still, 40,000 is not enough to build in all that in two years. Who fed them? Where are all the bathrooms? Where did they sleep? Why are there so few construction photos? And we'll look at that here in a minute. But when you look, you, you know, and they said that thousands of people would come to watch the construction of these buildings. No one took any pictures. There's no pictures of the construction. And what little construction pictures you do find, it's a nest of scaffolding on the outside of the building, which is the structure itself is mainly completed, right? The base of the structure is all completed. And they're either adding on a dome, working on the roof, you know, working on a side structure of it. But the main structure, there's no photos of them building the main structure. And all of the electrical work was underground. That was all dug and laid in that two-year time frame, time frame as well. This is, a, this is an architectural miracle, if you believe the narrative. Now, Howdy McCoskey brings up three possible scenarios for this, okay, on how these, the construction occurred. Okay, so one, the construction really took 30 to 40 years, and they're just lying about the time frame which would be difficult if you had the Great Fire in 1871 because that burned 2,000 acres of Chicago at the time and likely would have impacted all of these buildings as well. So I don't really believe that one too much. Two, construction took two years to complete. The builders had access to highly advanced technology for building electricity and transportation that we're not aware of. It's a possibility. There's no record of it. We can't find it anywhere. The third option is buildings have been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They weren't built. They were dug out or refurbished and painted to look new. They were founded or found dead. Okay. Think about that word, founded, found dead. They were already there. We just inhabited them, cleaned them up a little bit, polished them up, 
dug them out, whitewashed them, and they were good to go. That seems to be the most likely of the three scenarios here. But I'll leave that up to you to decide. Again, we get back to photographs, okay? There isn't much photography of the fair itself. A uh, gentleman by the name of Charles Arnold was the main photographer for the fair. And he had, you know, basically the, the rights to photograph the fair. But people could come and photograph the fair if they wanted. But it was so expensive that, you know, the normal Joe, you or I, really couldn't afford it. Okay, so they would charge you $2 to take pictures with a number four Kodak box camera, which was aptly named the Columbus. I find that quite fascinating. They would charge you $1 fee for Midway Street photos. And we'll get to what the Midway was, but that was kind of like the carnival area of the fair. Now to take a tripod shot, it would cost you $10, which at the time was the same cost as the fare itself, lodging, and meals for your trip. So they, it appears that they did not want photos taken unless they were taken by certain individuals, which is, adds another layer of mystery to this. And like I said before, during all this construction, there were thousands of people that would come to watch it. No one took pictures. Newspapers, no one. Now, I found this quote that was very interesting about the people at the fair. It said, everyone about us moved softly and spoke gently. No one seemed hurried or impatient. All were under a spell, a spell that held us from the opening of the fair until its close. And that's a, you know, when we get into magic here, that's a fascinating idea you know that these people were under a spell when they were at this fair that adds a whole nother element and if you look at the pictures that that we do have in here it's immaculately clean the people are just very orderly just walking around like they are under a spell and as we go through this look at the different pictures and look at the people in it and they're just kind of standing around moving about you know, there's no, it doesn't seem to be any chaos. You know, the crowds are all pretty orderly. All right. So now we get to the map of the fair. And you look here, and this is kind of an overview of what you're going to see here on the left is called the Court of Honor. This is where the 14 great buildings lie. You have the transportation building out here. Okay. Uh, another great building out here, the women's building over here, the government building over here. Okay. And it's just, I mean, look at this complex, guys. They built all of this, designed all of it. Okay. And that's the other part. They designed, landscaped, and built all of these structures in less than two years. We couldn't do that today with unlimited budget and unlimited manpower. Think about that. Okay, and this is what they did in 1893, supposedly. To give you an understanding of it, okay, the, the fair was held in Jackson Park, okay, 
690 acres. So if we look at this over here on the right, what I'm trying to show you, the area dotted in red is where the fair outline would have been. Inside the fairgrounds, you could fit all of Magic Kingdom and all of Epcot. That's how big this was, guys. And that's how extensive the landscaping and construction was. They did all of that in less than two years. Magic Kingdom and Epcot. Okay, think about those. One of those being built in two years, let alone both of them simultaneously. It's just unbelievable. Okay, this is another view. A bird, they call it the bird's eye view of the fair. And you can see, okay, Court of Honor is over here. We have the giant manufacturer's building up here in the front. Then we get to the back and you look way back here. This is the midway back here, guys. That's the Ferris wheel on the other end of the fair. Okay, and you'll just see, look at all these buildings. Over here on the right, we have the state and nation buildings. Okay, and we'll get into those as well. Uh, every state was represented and there was about 46 nations that were represented as well. Uh, just a massive international fair. So to give you some understanding of the size of some of these buildings, <clears throat> the manufacturer's building was almost 31 acres. Okay. The machinery building, 18 and a quarter acres. The transportation building was 16 acres. The agricultural building, 13.3 acres. Okay. The art building, six acres. I mean, six acres, guys, is a big building. The electricity building, six acres. Government building, three and a half acres. Horticultural building, five acres, five and a half acres. The mines building, another five and a half acres. Okay. So you're looking at all this land. There's 167 of the 690 acres is covered by buildings. So, you know, between a third and a quarter. It's just, it's, it's a massive undertaking. And to believe the narrative is just unbelievable. So here we go. Here's some construction photos. Okay, so what we're going to see here is no workers. All right, nobody's working. You see the scaffolding around the already finished exterior of the building. Okay, and then it looks like they're just touching up some of the, you know, things on the roof here. Uh, that's about it. There's not a whole lot going on. And all you see is lumber. There's no stone. There's no, it doesn't look like any materials for their mix that they used to build these buildings, supposedly. Because one of the other things we're going to get into is these were temporary structures. Okay. The only permanent building was the Palace of Fine Arts. And we'll get into that as well. But yeah, these are all supposedly temporary structures. Again, look at look at what we're seeing here. They're working on the dome. They're working on the side. But the main part of the building is already there. And then you get this photo on the right, just these three guys like posing for a picture, just hanging out on the roof. They're not doing any work. You know, there's no tools around. There's no, there's, and that's the other thing, guys. There's not a piece of trash on the ground. No building materials, little to no building materials. I mean, here you see what, like two piles of lumber, maybe a couple more over here, but you get your typical two people in the picture, three people in the picture, unfinished dome. Okay. But where's the construction of the buildings? 
Again, here, they're working on the second level. The base is already complete. And it just, I mean, you look at these photos. Again, here's another one. There's not many. There's a little bit maybe building material over here. But for what they're doing, it does not look like much. You get some railroad tracks right up through the building to get materials there, which makes sense. Okay. But again, we're just seeing, we're not seeing any construction photos from these massive buildings from the ground foundation up. Now, an interesting little side note, okay, while they were designing and building the World's Fair grounds, okay, those 200 buildings and landscaping and everything, John Rockefeller took over the, uh, well, he financed the University of Chicago, okay, which just so happened to be right next to the World's Fair, the exposition grounds. And in 1886, a fire destroyed everything but the main tower on the campus. So what does he do? Rockefeller decides, oh, let's, we're going to build it back right during, during the, uh, right before the exhibition. Okay, so he builds out this. And again, look at this, guys. If that fire killed that, that building in 1886, okay, by 1890, 91, this building is up. In five years. I mean, this is a mass. Look at the towers. There's so many beautiful towers. And this is a massive building, guys. And not only did they redo Chicago University, they did the Coliseum in Chicago was built also, as well as the new City Hall building. So these guys were busy. Everybody in the city must have been working all at once because they are just popping up these massive beautiful brick buildings all over the place and one more okay why not we have the chicago cultural center which is called preston bradley hall this just it, it's just you know beautiful building over a 1100 square feet of mosaics on the ceiling i mean you got to see this the 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 dome is tiffany glass Okay, it's a 38-foot Tiffany glass dome. The interior is all white Carrera marble. There's 30,000 panes of glass in it. And it costs about $2 million for this building. Again, they're building it while they're planning and building the Chicago World's Fair. Something just doesn't add up. So now we get to the Court of Honor. And you look at this photo here looking down the Court of Honor from the Columbus statue towards the Statue of Columbia. And you look and, you know, you see all the spectators around. You see the beautiful fountains. You see the basin, which is the, the water structure that's in, in the middle, with these giant Roman, Greek-looking, Renaissance-looking buildings that are intricate i mean the 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 landscaping alone the fountains you know the work that it must have taken to get those to to manufacture all of the beautiful statues guys it just doesn't make any sense so now here let's listen a little bit for uh, on the uh the court of honor after president cleveland hit the key on may 1st 
every fairgoer asked where to go first. As the fountains shot forth their streams of water, most visitors started their fair experience by gawking at the size of the buildings surrounding the Grand Basin. People stepped into the Court of Honor. The Columbus Fountain was right in front of them, and the Statue of the Republic was across the basin. The hard-to-believe bulk of the manufacturer's building rose up to the left, and the Capitol-style dome of the administration building was directly behind them. All around the basin were the buildings that looked like Roman temples, the gods of America's strength, the agriculture building, the machinery building, the mines building, the electricity building. The Court of Honor was the embodiment of America moving beyond the Yankee agrarian republic. It was now a great civilization, equal or better than Greece, Rome, and Europe. Behind the statue of the republic was the peristyle, remembered by everyone as one of the truly beautiful things at the fair. The peristyle was a Roman-looking colonnade with double rows of 48 columns representing the states and territories of the United States, all supporting a roof that was lined on both sides with huge allegorical statues secured to rails on the roof by cables. It looked like Vatican Square on Lake Michigan. The two sides of the colonnade met in a massive arch that looked like the Arc de Triomphe. On top of the arch was a group of statues and horses pulling a wagon symbolizing explorers. The peristyle was like the gateway between the fairground and the outside world. Many visitors who came by water entered the fairground through the arch. It was a great spot to see both the Court of Honor and the lake, especially from the roof. Walking between the rows of massive columns stretching for what looked like hundreds of yards, it was an intimidating and awe-inspiring experience. Guys, in these columns, okay, so there's a gentleman standing there. He's, you know, assuming he's about six feet tall. I mean, these things have got to be 40, 50 feet tall, these columns. I mean, they are just enormous. They're massive columns, and there's rows of them. All right. So that's a little look at it. So you had the Statue of Columbia, which we talked about before, or the Statue of the Republic, the Golden Lady. She had so many different names. Like I said, she was 65 feet tall. I'm surprised they didn't make her 66 feet tall. It would have just fit in with their plan a little bit better, but hey. And a 30-foot base. So she stood about 90, 95 feet in the air. In her right hand, she had an orb with a perched eagle spreading its wings, representing Horus. In the left hand, she had a staff with a winding serpent. Now you think about Columbia, and that that is basically, in, in my eyes, an ode to the District of Columbia. Because in 1871, we had the District of Columbia Act, uh, the Organic Act. And, you know, I think this is basically the ode to ha- handing off the Roman Empire piece to the United States. And this is where the United States establishes itself as that third cog in the wheel with the Vatican, London City, and District of Columbia. So the the, the Columbia significance and, and symbolism is is real. And I think it ha- it's on multiple levels. So then behind 
Colombia. Um, and much like you heard in the video, they said it looks like the Vatican because it does. It looks like the um, center of the Vatican with the the statues lining the entire peristyle. I mean, this thing, it was it was a giant structure that connected the music hall and the casino. Okay, and it was at the bottom of the foot of the basin. It was about 600 feet long. And here, here we go with the numbers. 600 feet long, 60 feet wide, 60 feet high. So there's your 666 you were looking for. At its center is a grand archway. Okay. And uh, so then what we have also is a portal dedicated to Columbus. Okay. And it's inscribed with all the world's great explorers. The peristyle itself, as the video said, has 48 columns to represent the states and territories of the United States at that time. So you look here, and this is the peristyle, okay? So you have you have the, the casino on one side. Um, hold on, where was that? You had the casino, oh yeah, and the music hall, okay? So those are the two buildings that it connected. You see a statue of Columbia here, the basin. I mean, this is a beautiful, you have all, and that's where we saw all the columns before, where look at all of these columns. I mean, they are massive, probably 40, 40 some feet columns, just a, a huge. I mean, now we get to see it again, and here's a color photo of it, or actually, no, this is a drawing, sorry. Uh, and I mean, you just see the detail of it. You see the, the beautiful columns with the intricate design. They had the names of the states inscribed, you know, the great explorers up here, the statues. I mean, you just look at this work, guys. It's it's It looks like, you know, Venice, like Italy. But this is Chicago in 1893. Again, this is that the photo that's on the cover of Howdy's book. And this is, you know, from behind Columbia down to the uh, agricultural hall. Uh, through the court of honor and it, it's just a just a beautiful landscape i mean look at this you see the the gold leafing they did on some of this um you know again you got the manufacturers uh no that's not manufacturers sorry that's the uh agricultural building and uh and it's just just beautiful so let's now let's get in to some of it so if you think about that okay we get into the uh okay so you look at some of these and here we have a picture of machinery hall another beautiful building that we'll get into in a minute but you, you just look at the the detail you know and of course what do we have over here nothing says america or Egypt or Rome and America, like a giant obelisk. And of course, they do not disappoint. They gave you an obelisk here. And we'll see it again in this picture. Okay, so you have the, uh, the machinery building right here. You have your giant obelisk. You have your Columbus, all these onlookers here. And it doesn't appear to be that crowded. So, I mean, you're talking about 690 acres. So you, you can imagine people are pretty spread out. And what, what amazes me is the difference between the uh, black and white photo and then the uh, touched up photo. And it get, just gives the, the fair a whole different life and you start to feel it. You know, the black and white is kind of cold. 
you give it a little bit of color and, and it brings this fair to life and you look at it and it's just even more amazing. So here's another look across the, uh, the court of honor and you go from black and white to color and you just look and, oh, I mean, the landscaping alone, the statues, everything. And, you know, it all in two years, I just, I can't believe it. So I'm not going to go through all of this, but this is generally the history of the electricity in the 1800s. Okay. So it wasn't until 1878 that Joseph Swan came up with the first incandescent light bulb. Okay. It was called the electric lamp, but it, it burned out quickly. Um, and they were able to eventually master it a little bit by 1880. Uh, Thomas Edison could get his bulbs to last for about 1200 hours. Um, and, and 1880 is when you start first seeing lights being used in for street lighting in public places. And the first place was Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, it, uh, California electric light company in San Francisco was the first company to sell electricity to customers. Okay. Um, and that was in 1880 as well. Um, in 1882, Thomas Edison opened a, a power station in New York City. Okay. It was one of the first, uh, world's first central electrical power plants, and it could power about 5,000 lights. Okay. It was a direct current power system, unlike what we use today, which is the AC alternating current. 1883, Tesla came up with the Tesla coil. Okay. And, uh, and, and the transformer that changes the electricity from low voltage to high voltage, make it easier to transport over long distances. Okay. And the transformer was huge. It was the crucial part to Tesla's system of alternating current. And it's still what we use today. 1884, Tesla invented the electric alternator. It was basically a generator, you know, that produces alternating current. And because um, up until now, everything had been direct current, right, from batteries. So the AC system was much better for sending, as we said before, the electricity over longer distances, which, you know, is the direction that we're going. And what else could they do? They could charge you right? They could find a way to meter it now and bill you. So um, in 1888, he, he came up with the polyphase alternating current system. Okay. And basically that was everything we needed. The generator, transformers, the transmission system, the motor, okay. And the lights. So Westinghouse, George Westinghouse, head of the Westinghouse Electric Company, bought the patent rights to the AC system. And that is supposedly what he used throughout the Chicago World's Fair. Okay, which is very interesting, because I still don't know how they ran all that. And how did they do all of it? How did they run all of that power through this? Because you'll see when we get into this, this place was lit up like a Christmas tree, it was brighter than New York City. Let's see here. Okay, so what did they need at the fair? They used about 17,000 horsepower for the lighting at the exposition. 
That's three times that they used in Chicago and 10 times that they used for the Paris World's Fair, which was just four years earlier. There was a 9,000 horsepower used for incandescent lights. It was for about 5,000 arc lights and 3,000 for machinery power. So what did they, they had a total of approximately 120,000 electric lamps were installed at the World's Fair. And there were the, the buildings that were entirely powered by electric were the mines building, the electricity building, the agricultural building, the transportation and manufacturers. So five of the um, great buildings had constant power and the cost of the electric uh, the electrical plant at the fair was about a million bucks. So they, it was not cheap to get this done. All right. So now we will dig in a little bit. Okay. So here's what we, we got described for the electricity. Okay. The scheme for the lighting for the main basin nights during the exposition includes thousands of incandescent lights of different colors one row extends just above the water's edge all around the basin and another row reflects deeper into the water from a few feet higher up still higher on the loges of all the buildings that surround the basin are another row of lights rows of lights also reach around the colonnade story of the admin building while the lower part of the building was lighted from the dome and the sides at the base of each tier of the fountain is another row of lights. Okay, so there were lights everywhere. The waterfalls had lights. Okay, they and then they had various searchlights. You know, when you're thinking of searchlights, it's like, yeah, like a lighthouse light that would go on. One of them was on the mezzanine level of the admin building. And it, it played with the fountain, the water in the fountain. You know, it, it shined on it to give it an extra glimmer at night. And then there was another one on the electricity building that would shine on the statue of the public. Okay. And, you know, think about that a gold statue at night with light on it. It must've just been a spectacle to see. And as we look at these photos, what you're going to see here is the admin building all lit up. Okay. Which you could say that would be today almost, you know, and that's how well it looks lit. You look at the court of honor all lit up. I mean, it is beautiful. And then you look inside the buildings and, you know, I believe this is the manufacturer's building. Look at the light. I mean, it's like a mall. It's like a present day mall in there. You wouldn't know you were in 1893 in this by the looks of it. I mean, it's just a marvel, guys. And how they did it remains a mystery. So we're going to, we've talked about the great buildings. Okay. And there's 14 of them. There's a manufacturer in liberal arts. You have the agricultural hall, the machinery hall, the horticulture building, the fish and fisheries, government, transportation, women's administration, electrical, the palace of fine arts, which happens to be the only permanent structure out of all these, the anthropology building, the mines building, and the forestry building. Now, each of these was a spectacle unto itself and were to promote the best of the time from around the world in their genre. Okay. 
And so we'll, we'll start with the manufacturer's building. Okay. I mean, you look at this building, it is a monster. It was the largest building by area ever erected under one roof. Okay. I mean, it's just a marvel. If it, if it was still standing today, okay, it would rank second in volume and third in footprint in the largest buildings of the world. I mean, it, it, it's a monster. Just that's the only way I can describe it. It was 32 acres, 650 feet long, 200 feet high at the center. It had eight domes and 11 acres of skylights. It took 65 carloads of glass. We're, we're talking carloads, train carloads. And it has an 18-foot eagle on each entrance. So supposedly the exterior of the building is covered with staff, okay, which is like a plaster material. And it's supposed to look and, and resemble marble, all right? And that's what most of these buildings were. Now, when we start looking into, again, let's talk about materials, okay? So for this building, 17 million feet of lumber, 12 million pounds of steel, 2 million pounds of iron. 10,000 electric lights, okay? And it costs about 1.7 million. Now, what's amazing about this building is it could hold, um, they, they say upwards of 300,000 people. Think about that. That's three of the largest football stadiums we have under one roof. And what it, I mean, it, the purpose of it was for literature, science, art, and music. You know, it was, it was, the liberal arts building but uh let's let's listen in here on what they have to say about it just a short stroll south along the waterfront from the states and foreign government buildings and you came across the centerpiece of the fair, the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building. Nothing like it had ever been built. No other building at the fair could match it. Its purpose was to hold thousands of national, state, and business exhibits showing off an eclectic array of products and art. Internally, it was divided into booths with exhibits from manufacturers from all over the world. Exhibits that were a monument to human ingenuity and peaceful commerce. And with so many exhibitors, it was impossible for one country alone to have the bragging rights and stand out. When the building was dedicated in October 1892, 100,000 people attended the ceremonies inside. The crowd was described as being lost in its vast interior. Promoters reckoned that the building could actually hold 300,000 people each with six square feet of elbow room. At a time when electric street lighting was still a novelty outside of the downtowns of America's largest cities, the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building alone was lit by 10,000 electric lights. The entire fair used three times as much electricity as the whole city of Chicago. The Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building dwarfed every building at the fair. In fact, when it was built, it dwarfed just about every building on earth. It was the largest building ever made 
at 1,687 feet by 787 feet. The enormous roof reached over 245 feet into the sky, supported by eight 100-foot pavilions at the corner and center of each wall. The floor space covered an area of 540,000 square feet, or 44 acres. The Great Pyramid of Giza could easily fit inside. One writer claimed that the full standing army of Russia could fit inside the building. The builder said that the metal and glass roof contained enough iron and steel to build two Brooklyn bridges. The building needed to be giant. The whole earth, it seemed, was inside. The number of exhibits in the building was impossible to count. There were hundreds of categories of exhibits, art, chemical and pharmaceutical supplies, paints, colors, dyes, varnishes, paper, stationery, upholstery, ceramics, mosaics, stone monuments, watches, jewelry, china, porcelain, glassware, furniture, stoves, clothes, musical instruments, more jewelry, medical supplies, dolls, asbestos, and firearms. Many new and recent inventions showed up in the building, some that lasted and some that didn't. There was a gigantic mineral water exhibit. Some exhibits were fun, like the Windsor Castle made out of soap. And if that wasn't enough clean fun, there was also a Brooklyn Bridge made out of soap. Who knew that there were so many... <laughs> All right, so you get the point. There was just about everything in the manufacturers and liberal arts building. It, it's, it's honestly one of the wonders of the world at the time. And, you know, it's just, it, it's uh, amazing. You know, 300,000 people it could hold. It's just, they said some people would go in there and not be able to see all of the exhibits in one day. And that's one building guys. There were so many exhibits in that, in that one building that they couldn't even see all the exhibits in that one building for a whole day. It's just, it's massive and, and hard to believe. And again, we're talking the late 1800s. Okay. I mean, look at this. It is a monster of a structure and it's not just put together. Look at the exquisite detail. You know, you have the beautiful columns, the statue work, all the windows are arched. It it, it appears you know, and if we go into the electric universe world, these would be some great conductors, right? They they have all the markings between the columns, the windows, the spires, you know, everything. It's just, they are, I mean, it's a, it's a massive, look at all the people here, okay? This is the opening ceremony where they had 100,000 people, and this is a third of the building. Okay, a third. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's comical. So let's go on to the agricultural building. Okay, this was designed by Charles uh, McKim. All right, and an, another big building, 850 feet by 500 feet. And the dome that you see there in the front of the building was 130 feet high. And the floor area covered about 15 acres. Okay, and then it had an annex on it that was about 550 feet by 300 feet and another four acres of floor area. The total cost of that, those, those two were about six hundred dollars to $800,000, okay? 
And the main building took, again, 7.5 million feet of lumber, 2 million pounds of structural iron, and 2 million. Uh, oh, and then the annex took another 2 million feet of lumber. So just between these two buildings, okay, let's look at that. We're looking at over 20, almost 28, 28 million feet of lumber. 14 million pounds of structural steel. Who's manufacturing this, guys? Who, who is making all of this stuff? I mean, look at this building. It is a behemoth. All right, and let's listen to what they have to say about it. Most of the state's exhibits of products weren't found in their respective state buildings, but were located in huge displays located within the main fair buildings surrounding the Court of Honor. The immense agriculture building had some of the most bizarre and entertaining exhibits at the fair showcasing U.S. and global agricultural diversity and innovation. The huge mines building on the north side of the Court of Honor held the displays of the wealth of America's mighty western silver mines, along with displays of precious gems from around the world, and the newfangled mining equipment of the day, like this electric rock drill. Montana, whose silver mining industry was in freefall as the fair began, brought a solid silver statue of the figure of justice. Silver girls were very popular. Colorado's display included a girl known as the Silver Queen, who was supposed to be 17, the same age as the state. There were exhibits of iron ore, copper, and petroleum. Salt was featured in many of the state's mining exhibits, including the Statue of Liberty carved from salt. And it was left to Missouri to recreate the St. Louis Bridge entirely out of sugar cane. So you see, they went above and beyond on these buildings. I mean, you just look, and this is this is one. I think this is taken from um, the day in October, October 8th, when they had 750,000 people in one day. Because just look at the crowd, guys. They're shoulder to shoulder. And, I mean, it's just the agricultural building is just a behemoth. The pillars on the outside are 50 feet high. And they don't even look that big in the picture of the building so massive. The building ended up costing about $1.2 million, So we're already at about $3 million just for two buildings. And you look even up on top. Look at the, the statue. It's a massive statue. Those guys, assuming they're five and a half feet, six. I mean, that's a 12, 15-foot statue there on top of the building. The intricate, ornate design is everywhere. So let's move to the machinery hall. This was designed by Robert Peabody. Okay. And this is again, about the same size as the agricultural hall being 846 feet by 490 feet. And then it had another annex, which was 490 by 550. Okay. Um, it covered about 20 acres. Okay. And it was surrounded by towers. It was about a million two to build. I mean, look at the design though. You have this beautiful dome. You know, you're telling me this is all fake. They did all this work for temporary just to build it up, to tear it down. That's where this, this guy's doesn't make sense to me. Why do you go through all the effort 
to put in all of this detail in these buildings only to set them ablaze at the end of it. It doesn't add up. Okay. And exhibits came from all over the world, right? All the civilized nations. And, you know, it was basically to show all of the electrical, you know, machines, everything. Now, the problem with this building was that there was so much machinery operating at once. It was so deafeningly loud. People could not last very long in there. So they had to get in and get out and and missed a lot of the great machinery that was in there just because it was just too loud. I mean, think about that. What does it cover? Uh, It doesn't say. I think it was, you know, it was something like, I think it was like 12 acres of just giant machines all cranking at the same time indoors with poor ventilation at best. It would get loud. It would get smelly. It would be tough to manage. But I mean, you, again, look at this beautiful, the towers, everything. So let's move on to the horticultural building, horticulture building. And this was designed by Jenny and Mundy. This was a big one. 11 or a uh, uh, thousand square feet by 240 square feet. It had again another massive dome in the middle that went up to 180 square feet, and it was about 115 uh, feet wide. Oh no, sorry, it's 180 feet across, 115 feet high. Sorry, I had my numbers backwards, but it looks like something out of the Renaissance. Right. And that's what it was. It was designed out of the Venetian Renaissance. And it it just, I don't know. The, and and what's even more amazing about this is that uh, the ceilings on the inside are painted. And a gentleman by the name of William Dodge lived in Chicago and painted the ceilings for 11 months. Okay. Look at that. I mean, it is a massive, massive building. And again, guys, the ornate detail on the outside of the facade. Look at all this. Why would you put all this effort into it if you knew these buildings were just temporary and going to be destroyed? It doesn't make any sense. So we'll move on to the fisheries building, the fish and fisheries building, they called it. It was... uh, about 365 feet by 135 feet, a big structure. But what it did have was a 14,000 gallon fish tank, which is at the time was impressive. And this building cost about $825,000. So one of the cheaper ones, but also, I mean, again, it's beautiful. And it, it this almost has like a, uh, a combination of, uh, european like the german feel to it but again it doesn't have that roman greek feel to it unlike the uh government building which we're going to go over right now the government building itself was about 415 square feet or (laughs) keep saying square feet 415 feet by 345 feet okay again a big building cost about four hundred thousand dollars to build and it was built in the classic style, okay? But the, the, the prominent feature is the dome, much like the dome of our capital today, okay? And the dome itself was 120 feet in diameter. 
and about 150 feet high. Again, guys, for this building to be temporary, why go through all the detail? I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful building. I mean, I just don't, it just doesn't make any sense. Look at this. I mean, you have these beautiful eagle statues. And again, the eagle is a big theme in this. And if we think about symbolism, right? What does the eagle represent? The eagle kind of flies up above. It's the all-seeing, right? And it just floats above and takes everything in. And it can strike at any time. And you don't know when it's going to strike or who it's going to strike. It is a predator. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's a symbol of America and many other countries is they're all part of that group, that all-seeing eye. So we move on to the transportation building. This is a, a kind of a, a, a different building than the rest because this one was actually decorated on the exterior, right? In different colors. It wasn't whitewashed like the majority of the rest of them. And it was in more of like a, a Roman style. Okay. And the interior of it actually resembled the uh, Basilica in Rome. It had the, the, the spectacle of it, as you can see by the photo, is the entrance, which was called the Golden Doorway. Okay. The building itself was almost a thousand square feet, a thousand feet in length and 250 feet wide. But it covered, guys, nine acres. I mean, it's a big, big area. And it had an exhibition area of about 20 acres. Okay, so this thing was a massive structure. It cost them about 500 k to build. But look at that entrance, the golden entranceway. Again, this is temporary, guys, according to the narrative. This was temporary, only to be destroyed. Why would you put this much detail? And how? How do you get this much detail in two years on all of the buildings? Guys, it just doesn't make sense. The story doesn't add up. So you have the women's building, okay, which was designed by a woman, Sophia Hayden, the first woman uh, graduate architect of MIT. It was about 400 by 200 square feet. There we go again. And it was built more in like the Italian, like Italian Renaissance, I guess you could say, kind of style. And it was just de strictly dedicated to like women's success, you know, whether it's art, literature, culture, you know, and it, it, it's quite a feat. And it also had a uh, women's library in it, had about 7,000 books by female authors, which if you think back in the 1890s, that's pretty good. And it actually, the building was able to host a conference of about 200,000 women over a couple days. I mean, look at the interior of this. It's just a beautiful building. They put the columns. It's not like they built these beautiful exteriors and then just had some drab interiors. I mean, this is a, a multi-level building, exquisite interior, you know, arches everywhere, columns everywhere, statues, artwork, just beautiful here's the layout of if you wanted to see the floor plan and how they did it um you know mainly the international up here 
and then you get down into some of the uh, library and things like that. And here's the assembly room that they had and the organization room where they could hold those summits. All right. The next building is the admin building. Now, this one kind of looks like the government building, but it's a smaller one. And you'll notice this one from before. This is one of the structures that we saw them building in some of the few construction photos that we had. This was one of the buildings that they built. And it had a great golden dome. Okay. And on the interior of the dome had a beautiful mosaic. Right. And look at the artwork on the inside, guys. The, the, the intricacy, the detail, the uniformity. Right. Everything's perfect. Everything matches. Less than two years this was done. Not only the building, but the artwork as well. And the dome of this, and I wish I had a better picture of it. Yeah, there's closer. It was said that this dome, there's no dome in this country to which this one can be compared. It is finer in every respect than any other on the Western Hemisphere. And that was according to a, uh, one of the historians from the fair. And, you know, it's one of those buildings that you look at it and you're like, wow, this is, this is a beautiful building. And again, think of the materials. We're talking 3.25 million feet of lumber. One and a half million pounds of structural steel. Guys, the numbers just keep adding up and adding up. And it's just a massive amount of supplies, materials, labor required. And again, look at the detail. Not only of the building itself, but the landscaping. The electricity building. This was designed by Henry Van Brunt and Frank Maynard Howe. Okay, it's, it's uh, 345 feet wide and 700 feet long. And it's built more in like a, a, a Corinthian type style. And uh, it had skylights all over it. Cost about 400K. And this is where the Edison Tower of Lights was. It was in the center of the building. Okay. And the temple electricity that was in this building was one of the most popular uh, sites at the fair. And it was just, you know, basically the whole point of it was for electrical exhibits, right? It was, you know, it had a statue of freaking Benjamin Franklin at the entrance. I mean, they hit every narrative they could here. And you know, it had interior and exterior lights, which at the time was not common. And just look at the size. It's massive. And that doesn't even mention the entrance. So we look here at the entrance. This is a huge arch with massive columns. The statue of Franklin right here in the beginning. And then you know, some of the great electricians of the time in this just beautiful design. Look at the design work on the facade of this thing. Just amazing, breathtaking work. Now we get to the Palace of Fine Arts. Okay, this was designed by Charles Atwood and is the only structure on the site that was meant to be permanent. Okay. It had a brick substructure and then they just put plaster on the facade, supposedly. It's 
you know, you start looking at it, it's 500 uh, feet by 325 feet or something like that. And then it's got the, uh, the big rotunda in the middle, which goes up about 125 feet. This building covered five acres, guys. It's a massive, and it hosted the finest art in the world. So look, I mean, look at the interior of it. You have a, a replica of, I don't know what that is. It looks kind of like the White House, but it's not. And then you have all the statues and art. I mean, just beautiful. Other major buildings at the fair containing a seemingly endless array of subjects and exhibits. The Palace of Fine Art was an impressive building with plaster work and classical columns that sat on the north shore of the North Pond near the state buildings. Unlike the rest of the fair buildings, the palace was built to stay because this building had to be fireproof to get insurance for all the irreplaceable paintings inside. The walls were built of brick covered with staff and the floors and roof were iron. Inside, it was a sensory overload. Over 10,000 pieces of art arrived. It was literally too much to display. It was so densely arranged that people had trouble taking in any one part of it. The galleries were too small for the art that arrived. Paintings were hung willy-nilly in a jumble of however many could fit on the wall. In some places, paintings were crammed into corners and hung four high on the wall. Sculpture covered so much of the floor space that there was only a few feet to walk between them. The galleries were arranged by nation. The French exhibit was the biggest next to the U.S. exhibit. The French exhibit had hundreds of paintings, all by the most renowned French painters of the day. Most of the paintings were technically perfect portraits and realistic scenes of historical events, battles, allegories, peasant life, and animal things. The industrial heart of German military might was on display in Germany's Krupp gun pavilion, built like a castle with towers and turrets. So there you have it, a massive building with so much art. They crammed it on the walls, four high, which is like a faux pas in the art world, right? You want to have as little on the wall as possible to give the art room to... to manifest to percolate you know to to do it but they just had so much that they had to stack it on one on top of the other now look at the entrance to this look at these columns beautiful columns beautiful facade here on the outside i mean this is a permanent building okay but now what's the difference between this and the other ones other than they tell us that the other ones were built of wood and staff. You know, it's, it's just, I don't know. It's a lot of steel. So we look at the, here's the layout of the, uh, the palace. You see France had their own, their own section. Italy had their own section that they, well, no, Italy didn't. They shared it with Belgium and Sweden, but France got their own section. And then the U S had a, its own section over here. So uh, lots of art. And that Palace of Fine Arts is one of the few buildings that's still around. And we'll get into that later also. So we look now at the Mines and Mining Building, okay? And this was between the Electricity and the Transportation Building kind of wedged in there. 
and this had more of like an Italian feel. Okay. And, uh, it was 700 feet long, 350 feet wide. It only costs about 260 K to build, which isn't bad. And it had about six acres of floor space. And in order to build it, here's another million and a half tons of iron and steel. Okay. So we'll just keep adding on all this. Iron, where is all this iron and steel and lumber coming from? And in this, some of the exhibits were diamonds, opals, you know, emeralds. They had iron, copper, lead, you know, coal, granite, marble, all sorts of minerals, mining, you know, the latest mining technology, all that was in this building. Yeah. And again, look at the exterior, the exterior to all these buildings, especially the entrances. You look at it and this is temporary, guys, supposedly. This is this is supposed to be different than the building we just looked at. I don't know. Look at that. I mean, it's just it's a work of art. Beautiful. And then you look on the inside, okay, and you start seeing all of the exhibits and displays, you know, as far as the eye can see. There are just exhibits everywhere. Here is the uh, my, Montana mining exhibit. You know, all the some of the states had their own mining exhibits. You know, like California, Montana, uh, a lot of the gold rush places. So now we move on to the forestry building, okay? Which is the second to last of the fourteen great buildings. And if we look at the forestry building again, this was designed by. Uh, um, excuse me, Mr. Charles Atwood, who also, uh, what the heck did he design? He designed the, uh, what was it? The Palace of Fine Arts, right? So he's a busy, busy man. And this building wasn't as exquisite as the rest. It was just a simple 500 by 200 building with a uh, 60 foot center. You know, it was kind of, it kind of looked like a barn. That's what I, or an old stable is, is kind of what I, I see it as, but it was made of white pine and it was, it was intentionally to show the wood. Okay. And, and basically what, what it was, was states and nations were displaying um, their different types of woods, their other forest products. Okay. And then uh, it's stuff. A lot of people at that time had not seen before. Okay, so here's the floor plan of the forestry building. Now, last but not least is the anthropology building designed by none other than Mr. Charles Atwood, his third building of the fair. And, and basically, guys, this was the Smithsonian headquarters. Right? It was designed by the Smithsonian, or the displays were organized by the Smithsonian. This was kind of the, uh, the HQ for Smithsonian at the fair. So that's, those are the main buildings. Now, what we have, I want to stop right there for a second. So now, after seeing that and hearing that, what do you think the plausibility is in 1893 of all those supplies not only being produced, but being shipped there in a two-year time period. Does it seem believable? Does it seem plausible? Does it seem possible? From what I see, it, 
I can't, I have not seen any evidence to make it seem like that the two-year timeline is legitimate. Now let's, let's go a little further. And those are just 14 of the buildings, guys. There's 186 more. That was 14 of them. Okay, they built all 14 of those massive, beautiful structures, interior, exterior, landscaping, two years. <laughs> it's a joke. It has to be a joke. There's no way. Okay, so what we're looking at here are the state and nation buildings. Okay, and what you'll have is over here on the left-hand side is where they put all of these. Now, some of them were just simple structures. Some of them were exquisite, and I'll show you some of those, okay? There's some like Illinois and Brazil that were just absolutely beautiful. California was a big one too. Um, and then what the states tended to do was give a, a representation of their state through their building, okay? And, and that's what we're going to start seeing. Let's just watch a quick... Many walked north to visit the exhibits of their own states. Just about every state and territory in the Union put up a building on the north end of the fairground. Visitors gazed with pride on the exhibits of their home states. With the unbridled boosterism of the 1890s, most states were not humble about showing off. The state buildings came in quite a variety of shapes, sizes, and degrees of flamboyancy with historical exhibits and displays showcasing their local histories. The grander states' buildings each tried to outdo the others, like the monstrous Illinois building. Just about every state had something to show, like the lavish New York building with its ornate banquet hall. Massachusetts was styled in the way that our forefathers would have styled their mansions, and Maine's was built of granite, wood, slate, and marble to demonstrate the state's resources. One of the great successes of the fair was the Liberty Bell, brought from Philadelphia to the Pennsylvania building, which was built to look like Independence Hall. California built an enormous old Spanish mission with exhibits that showed the lush, rich life on the West Coast. Like a vision of paradise, a fountain on the rooftop poured out streams of red wine. California's giant fruit displays were hard to believe. Among the various citrus sculptures, there was a knight on horseback made out of dried prunes, known as Sir Preserved Prunes. There was a Liberty Bell made out of oranges, lemons, and grapefruit, and a tower of 14,000 oranges. Every week, the fruit was given away when fresh fruit arrived from California. No place in America looked more bountiful. Most of the state's exhibits of products weren't found in their respective. So there you have it. The state's buildings, all right? And we'll take one more look. Visitors could sample the world. These Every are the world buildings. What was known as the civilized world had exhibits at the fair. Most of the European nations built their own buildings just to the south of the state buildings. A mini Europe clustered behind the North Pool on the shore of Lake Michigan with a dose of Latin America, Turkey, India, and the exotic empires of France, Holland, and Britain thrown in. These national buildings were meant to impress the fairgoers and to sell products. Visitors could sample the world with a dazzling array of food, clothes, art, 
and cultural exhibits. You could sample rare coffees and tropical medicinal plants at the Guatemala building. The British Victoria House, looking like a half-timbered English country estate, was a gentleman's club. You only got in by invitation or rank. If you didn't have an impressive calling card, you had no chance. The Canadian building was popular because of its location and the fact that they were friendly and far less pretentious than the British. The big spenders at the fair were France and Germany. France built a recreation of a wing of the Palace of Versailles with columns and great statuary and then seemed unsure about what to put in it. Germany knew just what to put in its national building, a reconstruction of a medieval Bavarian town hall with an enormous imperial German eagle. In it were the crown jewels of the Kaiser's family, plus books and artwork. The national building was only one of Germany's many attractions that caught attention at the fair. And so something interesting right there from that state building. Did you hear what they said about the German building? They kept the Kaiser's family jewels in there in a temporary structure. Okay. <laughs> I, I find that hard to believe that they would have something that valuable. So let's take a look at some of these buildings. Okay. Now this is, this is the Brazil building. Again, this is a, it looks like a castle or a palace, right? It's just a beautiful, and again, temporary, just built for the fair, only to be destroyed afterwards. You look at the government building in France, again, another massive structure. Okay. You see the columns, the artwork, the detail. And like they said, the French didn't even know what to put in there. <laughs> it was, you know, it was, they just built and it, it's such a massive, beautiful structure. Look at the windows and the artwork on the back here and the detail in the facade columns. I mean, it's just over and over. So you look, and, and this is a, a side view or a, yeah, of the French building again. And this is that uh, replication of the wing of Versailles that they were talking about. And you see the fountains, the detail of the fountain, everything. Just a beautiful, beautiful layout. You look at the English. This is the Victoria House. Okay, this is, has a very English, london feel to it in the late 1800s. The Guatemala building, which was surprising. Like you think Guatemala out of all these countries, Guatemala had a big presence here in a massive building. I mean, this is an intricate structure with some domes and, you know, balconies, windows right on the waterfront. It is a beautiful building by the uh, good old Guatemalans bringing it heavy. And then what they mentioned before was that German building. You're telling me this is a, a temporary structure here? They just pop that up and they're going to keep the Kaiser's family jewels in there. All right. It's a beautiful structure. Now, what I want you to understand is were, were all of these found dead? No, no, not all the structures at the, at the fair were found dead. I, I believe quite a few of them were built. Many of them were built. A lot of the smaller off buildings were built. A lot of the state buildings, I think, were built for this. But there's also some that I think were already there. So let's look. Here's the children's building. Does that look like 
something they could throw up. Yeah, that looks like something they could put up in two years and make a staff and everything. I mean, it's not it's not out of the question. So now we get into New England. I, I did this because this is my neck of the woods. And, and it does. Connecticut, the Connecticut building does have a very Connecticut feel to it. You know, you look at Massachusetts. Yeah, that, that, that fits Massachusetts. You know, it looks like a cape, not a cape, but a, a mass, you know, house back from the 1800s. Rhode Island I found interesting because it's kind of a replica of the White House. Like it's, it's strange. It look, kind of looks like the White House with columns going all around it. I don't know how that ties in with Rhode Island. Interesting though. Maine has kind of a gazebo-y feel to it. It fits Maine. And then New Hampshire has like a rustic cottage, which definitely fits the New Hampshire feel. So, you know, you get it. And, and from these pictures, yeah, I, I believe that all of these were built for the fair. I don't believe any of these were found dead. I mean, these are just structures that they could have built. Now, this, on the other hand, the Illinois State Building, I have some questions about. Because you look at this massive building with the beautiful dome and columns everywhere. And, you know, it's just a just a massive structure. You're telling me they built this out of staff, wood? Okay. Interesting. I don't, I don't know if I buy that. The Illinois building is definitely one you want to look at. The Indiana building kind of looks like... Uh, cinderella's castle in a sense but yeah and i don't really know how it ties to indiana but uh although there were moroccans in indiana it does have a little bit of a a moroccan feel to it um but hey who knows the missouri state building another building that's very interesting massive dome a couple of uh smaller domes in front and then uh just an interesting shape building again i think this could have could have been built during the fair i'm not i don't see any reason why they couldn't same thing with the new york building has kind of a castle-y feel to it you know uh not overly massive just you know a good size structure to represent the state of new york now ohio actually did have a replica of the white house uh they did go the replica of the white house route and it looks like a replica of the white house you know and again this could have been built during those two years the pennsylvania state building was supposed to look like independence hall and they actually brought the liberty bell to the fair which i found quite interesting um that they would bring that all the way out to chicago well not all the way it's come from pennsylvania it's not tremendous distance but to bring it out there at that time had to be an effort then you get the texas state building Texas does everything a little bit bigger, right? So they do have a massive building here. Um, you know, kind of a, a, a plantation-y feel with the, with the towers and everything. I'm, I don't know. And then there was California, okay? One of the bigger buildings in it, 435 feet by 150 feet. I mean, it was a massive, they had a lot to show. And e- each of the counties got their own um, exhibits there if they wanted it. And that's kind of how they broke, broke it up. Now we get to the Midway. And I mentioned this before to you. The Midway is, is kind of where all the fun and action took place, right? It's, they had a, uh, a, a person mover, okay? A, 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 you know, a sliding railway. They had the 
uh, uh, whatchamacallit, the Ferris wheel. You know, this is where you would go to eat. They had all sorts of villages here. This is where some of the um, uh, nations would have villages in here. If they didn't build a massive uh, building, they would have a structure in the midway. You know, nations like Japan, uh, there was a Moorish palace in in there. Uh, Germany had a village in there. Um, You know, the Irish, there was all sorts of stuff in the midway. And that was kind of the spot you went for the entertainment and eating and all that. So it was basically, it was a sideshow, right? And, and the different exhibitions, you'd pay anywhere from a dime to 50 cents per exhibition. And the midway was a mile long. So it was a good, long straightaway. And it held, a, like we said before, a, a variety of, of attractions. You know, they had ethnic villages. Turkish, Chinese, African, Native American. They had concerts, theaters, food. And then the Ferris wheel, which was dead at the end, was essentially what the Chicago Tribune deemed it as the landmark of the fair. Okay. I mean, it was a massive structure. So here's a view looking from, excuse me, from the Ferris wheel out back towards the fairgrounds okay and you'll see the different the different buildings here set up on the midway okay here's an interesting one the snow and ice railway basically like a giant luge okay it was a roller coaster that went on an ice paved track it had uh it was about 60 feet by 400 feet okay and what it did is it had one loop you know, and it would go up to about 25 feet and then shoot you down and you would go on these two trains and ride it all the way around. They were kind of like bobsleds, right? And they held a few people and you could go around. It was pretty cool for the time. Now, here's what I was talking about before is the moving sidewalk, the people mover. It was on the Great Wharf. And, you know, basically you go there and it, it would move you around like they, they have in the airports and everything, which is, it, I mean, and this is not a small one. As you can see, it goes out to the end of the pier. So another impressive feat at the fair. Now, one of the more interesting things that they had at the fair was called human zoos. Okay, and it's exactly what you think it is. It was a a phenomenon in the late 19th, early 20th century where exotic humans or non-white humans, it should say, from all over the world were publicly (laughs) exhibited in cities of the industrialized world. The main attraction of the zoos was the promise of to see authentic traditional life of the peoples, right? So you could see how other people lived, you know, like going to a zoo and they would have these people dress up as they would dress. They would live as they would live in, in these little contained areas, don't know how how much that would fly today how pc that is but hey we're talking about 1890 and they did anything they could for a buck you'll see here you have some natives you have some eskimos and of course they used the most you know stereotypical layout for them right and and again it's it's fitting a narrative they're trying to tell you a story and what is it what are they telling you with these human zoos They're telling you that you are superior to these people. These people are inferior to you. The great 
white city. Okay, as much as people want to poo-poo around it, this was the basically the Europeans establishing dominance in America and saying white is right. You know, like from the own uh, I forgot which one it's uh, is a dodgeball. But yeah, I mean it's it's disgusting, yes. But again, it's 1890. And, you know, it it would not pass today, obviously. But at the same time, it's one of those things that you live and you learn. Now, here we go. This is an interesting one. These are the infantoriums or the infant incubators. Okay. And what they did is they had a building at the Chicago Fair filled with incubator babies, orphaned incubator babies. Okay, so it says the great attraction is a great deal more than an exhibit. It's an educator. Incubators are located in a beautiful structure in the southeast corner of the boardwalk. The building is the only one on the grounds, which has any color, being a dark red with white trimmings. It is built after an old colonial style and it's most pretentious in appointments. That's from the Living History of Chicago, uh, Living History of Illinois and Chicago website. And they went on to say, these tiny infants, only a few days old and born into the world from one to three months ahead of natural time. So they're premature and were put into glass ovens, which are kept at an even temperature and supplies constantly with sterilized air by means of an automatic arrangement. The little ones seem thoroughly enjoy their homes in the glass houses and in sweet sleep of infancy they create a fascinating picture. Guys, if this doesn't disturb you, I don't know what will. A, okay, I'll give them credit. The incubator probably saved some lives. But why are we displaying this at the fair with live babies? These babies aren't going to be scarred by growing up in an incubator. Not with a mother. Growing up in a glass bubble. I mean, look at this. This is what they were in. They were in ovens, little ovens, looking out through a glass door like animals in a zoo. Now, granted, many of them likely would have died had it not been for the incubators. So it probably is a good thing that they they were used. And and just mind you, these are from 1904 in St. Louis World Fair. Um, These aren't from Chicago. These aren't the ones from Chicago, but... Uh, I just wanted to give you an idea of what these incubators. Okay, here you go. Now, I mean, look at this. They even had three babies in one incubator. Guys, I don't know. If you don't see something wrong with this, I don't know what to tell you. So now, off of this, there was a gentleman named Cooney who decided to take these babies take these incubators and travel them like a circus around America. And they were, it started at Coney Island in New York. You can look in, look into that The incubator babies at Coney Island in New York. And that's where this all kind of started. And it's very disturbing to say the least. So now we move on to the Ferris wheel, the mammoth. If the buildings weren't big enough, see, and the reason why they did this, right. They need to, they needed to, to kind of match 
the Eiffel Tower that Paris put up for their previous expo. So they needed something because the buildings obviously weren't enough. You know, like these these beautiful, massive, the world's largest building at the time wasn't enough. So Ferris came up with the Ferris wheel. And he's like, well, we're going to put this Ferris wheel on steroids. And we're going to let this thing ride. So each of the passenger cars, to show you how massive they are, could hold 36 passengers. Or no, sorry, 60 passengers. There were 36 cars. The total capacity of it was about 2,160 people. Okay. For the, for the, to show you how big this thing was, for it to make two full revolutions, it took about 20 minutes. Okay. So about 10 minutes to make one revolution. That thing, it's moving pretty slow and it's giant. The axle alone, okay, weighed 142,000 pounds. Think about that. 142,000 pound axle holding that whole thing together. But it was a success. A million four, 1.4 million people rode the Ferris wheel. And it's kind of funny. They, there were a lot of people that got married on the Ferris wheel, so much so that they dedicated one cart of the wheel strictly to weddings. And you know how people are, you know, people would get married in there and, and they had to one up the, the, the other people. So not only did, were people getting married in the cars, one crazy bastard and his wife decided to get married on top of the car as it went around. Not my idea of a good wedding, but Hey, to each his own. I don't know if any weddings are good weddings anymore, but Hey, I digress. The interesting thing about this is not only did they build it, they took it down and reused it in the 1904 fair in St. Louis. And then after it was done there, they blew it up. <laughs> Dude, these people are psychopaths. Like you can't just let anything be. It couldn't just stick around. We have to destroy. And that's where we're getting to right now. This is destroy, destroy, destroy seems to be the MO of this world fair. Build it up, show you what you could have and what there was, and then we're going to push you into what you're going to get. And that's what this fair is in a nutshell. And as I said before, on Chicago Day in October 9th of 1893, the fair drew 750,000 people. It was the uh, largest crowd for an outdoor event at the time. And with this day alone, the debt for the fair was paid off. They went from being in the red to being positive after this. They made about $1.5 million that day, which is the equivalent of about $43 million today. $43, $44 million. Pretty good day. Not bad for business. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. So not only did you have the World's Fair going on, but you also had possibly one of the most notorious serial killers roaming the fairgrounds. A gentleman by the name of Herman Webster Mudgett, who also who liked to go by the name of H.H. Holmes or Dr. Henry Howard Holmes. He was active killer from December of 1891 till November of 1894. Now, he confessed to 27 murders, 
was convicted of one, which just so happened to be his business partner, Benjamin Peitzel. But there's rumors that he could have killed anywhere from one to over 200 people. And I think I'm going to end up doing a a full show on him. Uh, The boys over at Whiskey, Beer, and Conspiracy just did a great two-parter. They finished up the second part recently uh, on H.H. Holmes. And I highly recommend it. Go check it out. They did some great work on it. Um, Interesting take on it, too. And, And they look at a few different angles of Holmes because the story is all over the place. The book, uh, The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson is where I got a lot of my information on H.H. Holmes. And that's kind of a fiction novel, but man, it goes into some detail. You know, it gives you some ideas as to what this guy was doing. And not only was he a psychopath, he was a swindler. Okay, I mean, he, he was constantly conning people out of money. He His whole way of life You know, it seemed like he owned, okay, let me put it this way. He owned what was called the World's Fair Hotel, okay? And, or as it was known to many, the murder castle, okay? And what he would do was lure women into there and they would disappear. A lot of the times he would say, oh, they just took their bags and they left. They went out west to California or they went over to Europe, never to be heard from again. So, uh you know, in addition to, to having that, he, you know, he was, like I said, he was a con artist. He was, he was a swindler and he was, he was the subject of over 50 lawsuits in Chicago alone, not to mention the ones in New York and around the country also. So this guy was a real piece of shit, you know, a sick, sick man. And, uh, you know, he was eventually executed, uh, in 1896 but, you know, the legacy of H.H. Holmes is still around because you can't tell whether he, you know, how many people did he kill, first of all. Now, there's rumors and, and you know, how do you say, oh, well, how do you go from one to 200? How, that's kind of a vague area. Well, yeah, it was. Think about you're in the 1890s. This guy had a hotel that supposedly had all these weird shoots and setups in it and had an incinerator in the basement. So, he could easily dispose of this, but one way that they, you know, that you can t- know that he killed folks was he donated full human skulls to different colleges and scientific institutions. Where was he getting the skulls or, or, or skeletons if he wasn't killing these women? And it was all women. He always went after the women. He would single them out. He would, you know schmooze them and then boom some some he would just lock in the in the in the incinerator and then turn it on and there they go so yeah it's it's a sick story and i highly recommend looking into it and i like i said i may do end up doing a show on this too i know my my buddies over at whiskey beer and conspiracies did a great show um and if i don't have anything else to add i'm not going to just do it for doing it but here here's a newspaper from back in the day showing the layout of the murder castle you know and how it was just it was not a typical hotel so to speak had all sorts of interest intricate designs over here you see some of the people that went missing and some of the uh 
suspected victims of Mr. H.H. Holmes. So it wasn't enough that H.H. Holmes was a serial killer running around um, the World's Fair. But you also had Mayor Carter Harrison was assassinated just days before the end of the World Fair. Okay, and he was assassinated by a gentleman by the name of Patrick Pendergrast. And what happened here was this guy, Patrick Pendergrast, was one of those guys who always thought he was owed more. He deserved more. You know, he was going to be this big time politician, schmoozer. You know, he didn't didn't want to work. He just wanted to be important. So what he would do was kind of latch on to these important representatives in politics like mayors you know, representatives, other, other people like that. And figured, you know, just by writing their, writing their coattails, eventually he would get a position. Well, when uh, Mayor Carter Harrison was reelected and didn't appoint Mr. Pendergrass to any positions, he lost his shit and he went over to Harrison's house and shot him a couple times, murdered him, killed him. And what's interesting about that is, they convicted and killed Pendergrass within like two weeks. It, it was insanely quick. I may be off a little bit on the time there, but they had the trial, put him to death right away. Maybe there was something to cover up there. I don't know. It just seems awfully suspicious that he would get killed really that fast, almost like in the you know Lee Harvey Oswald or uh, you know fashion. Maybe he was just a patsy. Now, as I said before, one of the interesting sideshows, now, since the, the fair itself was too kind of like high society, they thought, for Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, Buffalo Bill said, okay, screw you. I'm going to build right across the street from the expo grounds. And I'll have people come. So what did he do? He did. He built Buffalo Bills Wild West in the Congress of Rough Riders of the world right next to. So here's the if you're looking at this map here, here's the World's Fair grounds right here. Here's actually the basin that looks like a giant penis, interestingly enough. And then here is Buffalo Bills grounds. OK, and what they would do is. He, he actually opened before the fair. Okay, and he would show off like Bronco Busters and wild animals and, you know, they had cowboy music and they had some staged battles, right? They would have Indians attack a stagecoach and, you know, uh, they actually even had a, a realistic staging of Custer's Last Stand, which was interesting. And it, it's not like this was just like some one-off uh Sideshow. He had an 18,000 18, seat arena and it was sold out almost every day. All right. So he was, he was doing really well. And then, at, however, after Wounded Knee, the Battle of Wounded Knee, he wasn't sure if he was going to be allowed to hire natives anymore for his show. So they began going to other races and they'd bring in like Russian Cossacks or, or the Gauchos from Argentina. Okay. And the, the show was such a success that not only did they tour America, they toured Europe. He did a show for the queen in England. So, I mean, this thing was great for him. I mean, 
Yeah. Okay. And it, it closed on October 31st, like the fair average of 16,000 spectators attended each of the 318 performances. So his overall attendance was over 5 million. Okay. He cleared about a million in profit, which is about 30 million today. Not bad for a couple months work. And he really won over the people too, because he was trying to stick it to the fair any way he could. And he figured anybody that came here and didn't go over there was the way I could kind of stick it to them. So what do you do? He offered what he called Waif's Day. And he would offer any child from Chicago a free train ticket, admission to the show, and then to go around the campus of the Wild West. And then he gave them all candy and ice cream, you know, and, and he actually got about 15,000 kids came and he was hailed as the champion of the poor. You know, it's, it's amazing. And just looking over here at the, at the flyer, you'll see, this is where they use some of the cock Cossacks instead of natives to do some of these battles. And they would just do different battles. They would change it to like, okay, they're battling in the Caucasus or something rather than having a Wild West shootout or a Cowboys, you know, Cowboys versus Indians kind of thing. Now, here's where some more questions come up, okay? Because was the ending to the World Fair inevitable? Because in some discussions, Charles McKim, who is one of the designers of the building, said, indeed, it is the ambition of all concerned to have the fair swept away in the same magical manner in which it appeared and with the utmost dispatch for economy, as well as for obvious reasons, it has been proposed that the most glorious way would be to blow up the buildings with dynamite. Another scheme is to destroy them with fire. And the last would be easiest and grandest spectacle, except for the danger of flying embers in the event of a change of wind from the lake. So basically, McKim says right there, we got to either blow this thing up or we're going to set it on fire. Why? You couldn't use all these buildings? Even if they were temporary, right? Because we see at other fairs that some of these temporary structures, they end up keeping for years and years, like the Parthenon in the Nashville Expo, right? That that was supposed to be temporary. They kept using it on and on and on. And they actually rebuilt it remodeled it supposedly so here's another one from uh, from an article in cosmopolitan magazine better to have it the fair vanish suddenly in a blaze of glory than fall into gradual disrepair and dilapidation there's no more melancholy spectacle than to festal hall the morning after the banquet when the guests have departed and the lights are extinguished So basically, they're telling you right there that, A, they're not going to upkeep this thing, which part of it is I don't think they could. I don't think they had the ability to upkeep some of these old structures. They didn't know how to do it. So rather than have them fall into disrepair and dilapidation, let's let them go out in a blaze of glory. And they did. Okay? Not one, not two. Not three, but four fires on the fairgrounds. Now, granted, one of them was during the fair on July 10th, 1893 in the cold storage uh, building. They had a fire and it actually uh, killed a bunch of firefighters trying to extinguish it. So, guys, 
They told you on the previous slide, we, we got to get this, get rid of this thing. Well, now they come out and they may, they have miraculously four fires. Okay, the cold storage fire didn't really destroy anything. It damaged the building. You get into, then you get after the fair, January 8th, you had the f- fire in the court of honor. July 5th of 1894, the year after the fair ended, seven of the great buildings go by fire. And then last but not least on August 28th, 1896, they light the statue of the Republic on fire. And we'll get there. So look at this. This is the uh, electric uh, electricity building set ablaze. I mean, look at just, yeah, just people standing around watching these massive fires, watching these great structures just burn. They did at least bring some water to try and hose them off. But I mean, look at these fires, guys. These are ragers. So on January 8th, 1894, the Peristyle, the Music Hall, the Casino, and the Manufacturers Building all go down in the Court of Honor. Okay, so you're talking about that whole side over there gets taken out. Then you have the Electricity Building catches fire. The Mines and Mining Building catches fire. I see a pattern here. This is the remnants after the peristyle fire. So you're looking from behind where the peristyle would be. And look at this, just twisted metal, burnt. What's interesting about this photo is you don't see as much rock and brick as you did in the other one, leading you to believe that maybe some of this was not built from brick. Here's the July 5th fire that destroyed seven great buildings okay you had the manufacturers building was finished off the mining building the electricity building the agricultural and the machinery but they did manage to save the government building and look at this destruction though guys this looks like a fire bombing carpet bombing right i mean look at the destruction and devastation here you see Twisted metal, brick, wood, ash, everything. And you see the statue of Columbia just standing here in all her glory, watching it all go down. But her turn would come, and that was on August 28, 1896, when she was intentionally set on fire and and here's an article from the newspaper and what it said is just as the sun lifted its fiery head above lake michigan yesterday uh, yesterday morning mechanical engineer wilder of the south park system applied a match to the kerosene soaked fuses leading to the base of the statue of the republic in jackson park within five minutes the interior of the pile standing 100 feet above the water in the lagoon was a mass of flames And 25 minutes later, the charred and blackened skeleton of the once beautiful figure toppled and fell into the water. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a ritual right there. That sounds like a, a, like some sort of dark arts ritual 
to just soak this thing and then let it burn. Now, mind you, if it was coated in gold, how are we burning it? Is gold going to melt? I don't know. Is the base going to melt? The base was probably stone if it was in water. Is it going to melt? I don't know. I don't understand this. If it's a statue, statues are made out of rock. I find it hard to believe that this statue was made out of uh, staff. Why, why would you make a statue out of staff? Statues are made out of some sort of rock, whether it's granite, marble, whatever. I don't know. Out of all of the buildings, the 200 that were built, four remain today. You have the one permanent structure, which was the Palace of the Fine Arts, is now the Museum of Science and Industry. The auxiliary building is now the Art Institute of Chicago. The Norway Pavilion was moved to Blue Mound, Wisconsin. And the main pavilion was moved to Poland Spring, Maine. So out of all that, guys... All that remains is those four buildings. So, I don't know about you, but that story just doesn't jive, right? It just doesn't make sense. After seeing all of these buildings, okay, let's go back and let's look at some of these, okay? We're going to look at you know, the machinery hall, okay? The manufacturer's building alone, right? 300,000 people it could hold. Guys, they can't fill a pothole on my street without it taking a month, but they can build 200 buildings in a little bit of time. Now, not only did they build it, but what was the purpose of the Chicago Expo? And I've hinted at this a couple times and I, I, I really feel like it was to show you what things were like previously and what they were going to be in the new industrial revolution, right? And that was that this was the destruction of the grid, the previous grid of the previous, I call it the old world. Some people call it Tartaria. I think that's kind of catchy and or not catchy, I think it's kind of cliche, and I don't like the term Tartaria to capture everything. But this was old world, right? This was the old world. They had advanced building. Now, when were these built? I don't know. I cannot pinpoint it. A lot of these structures have similar structure to the stuff that was built in the 14th and 15th century over in you know Rome, Greece, all, Europe, right? These, these have these, they could be that old. I, you just don't know. Because our history books say that, you know, when Columbus came over in 1492, this was nothing but, you know, woods and a bunch of natives running around scalping any white man they saw. I mean, come on. That's the, the most ridiculous story I've ever heard that the whole rest of the world was developed but the United States or America, North and South America was just this free land that nobody had ever been to. Come on. The Vikings were here. The Moors were here. The natives were here. 
it's it's just a ludicrous story to believe and so how did they they so what do they do here they build up columbus right they build up that discovery of america okay get you get you all in on celebrating this great discoverer who just also his name kind of sounds like this little area of land we set up that's going to be the capital called columb district of columbia so we're going to have a statue of columbia and i think that burning of the statue was the burning of you know the ceremonial burning of the way things were and what you know we thought life was like and they were going to feed us the next generation of building of medicine of education of government everything it's all about it and i really feel like this was kind of the farewell to the old world right they get rid of these all these buildings and they did this guys at every world's fair every world's fair across america and we will get to that hopefully in the next week or so we'll do a high level overview of some of the bigger u.s world's fairs and what happened there and you'll see it over and over. And, and what's amazing is not only you see the same architecture in Omaha, Nebraska, Nashville, Tennessee, Buffalo, New York, San Francisco, California, New York, okay? You're seeing at a time when transportation was limited, right? You could only move around by train. Horse and buggy. People weren't flying across the world at this time. You were taking ships. It took time to travel. So for, for these buildings and similar structures, it's much like the pyramids that we find all over the world, right? There's pyramids in, in Asia. There's pyramids in North America, South America, Africa, Europe. There are, and, and there's no explanation to it. They just give you some bullshit narrative. And that's really, guys, what I, I think the Chicago Fair was a giant ceremony, a giant send-off to the old world, followed in 1901 by the Buffalo one. 1904, they did St. Louis. 1915, they blew up San Francisco. Okay, and they over and over and over and just slowly erasing the old buildings, the old earth grid geo necromancy destroying the earth's layout the grid the pattern because i i really do believe that these buildings were built multi-purpose they were part of a greater purpose now was it were they part of an energy grid possibly were they on ley lines and had local power quite possibly but the fact that they would build 200 buildings in two years, which is not possible, ask any architect and the landscaping, mind you. Look at the landscaping alone here, guys. Look at that landscaping, bridges that, on a swamp. So how did, they, how did they get all the foundation for all these buildings? They laid all these foundations in swamplands. No issue, no sinking of buildings, nothing. It just doesn't make any sense. None whatsoever. So 
with that said, I hope you got some good information out of this. And, you know, I hope you go and dig. I just kind of gave a high level of the the structures of this and kind of the backstory. I didn't really get into all the the spectacles at the fair inside these buildings. Although, you know, you could probably do a whole nother show on just what was at the fair. Um, but I really, really don't believe it. And, you know, some other great sources to check on this would be people like Howdy, Michelle Gibson, John Levy, all do great work, autodidactic. They all do excellent work on this old world. And, and guys, this is just one piece of it. There's so many, so many things that we've been lied to. I'd never even heard of the Chicago World Fair, honestly, until last summer. I knew that I knew about world's fairs, but I didn't know about this one. So with that said, I am going to bid you adieu. I thank you for your time. I thank you for, uh, give it a, give it a like, give it a watch on YouTube. If you want to see all the pictures and everything and, and get a better visual aspect because you can't understand the scope of this guys without seeing it okay so with that said we are continuing to work on old world november we still have uh like i said we're going to touch on some of the other world's fairs in america and we're also going to touch on star forts um so we got a few of those shows coming up and then on in this early december i'm going to be doing a round table with uh with the guys at Rising from the Ashes on uh, Tartaria slash Old World. I'm really looking forward to that. So I will let you know as soon as that comes out as well. And uh, and once we get through the Old World, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get off it for a little bit and bounce to a couple other topics. And I'd like to get some interviews in. I'd like to take a breath from the deep dives. As much as I love them, they can be overwhelming. And, uh, and extremely time consuming. And I would like to just talk to some people and, uh, and hear what they have to think. And especially on this old world stuff, if I can get people on that, we will keep going that route. But there's other things in life too. I don't want to be a one trick pony here. I want to, I want to, you know, spread some love on health, on happiness, on spirituality, on, uh, opening up our eyes to some more of the, uh, the great deceptions that they have going on. You know, I plan on doing a show eventually on the myth of Napoleon. Okay. And some word magic. So we got, a, we got a lot of things coming up here in the future, big plans, big plans. But again, thank you all for your time with that. I will say goodbye. Stay strong, be safe and question everything. <laughs>